Welcome to Cleary Gottlieb's Antitrust Review, a podcast focused on antitrust enforcement, policy, and practice. In an increasingly complex and noisy world, we strive to provide insight, clarity, wisdom, and light. My name is Nick Levy, and I'll be your host today. My guest today is a legend. He joined the European institutions almost 50 years ago when the UK joined what was then the common market. In the intervening period, he's had an extraordinary career. He served in the cabinets of two British commissioners, Bruce Millen and Neil Kinnock. One of the early heads of the merger task force, he's been a director of a different commission directorate in each of the 1990s, 2000s and 2010s, the Directorate Generals for Development, Competition and Energy. He served in the EC Secretariat General, responsible for relations with the Council. He's been a non-executive board member of the UK Competition and Markets Authority, chair of the EU Competition Law and Policy Workshop at the European University Institute in Florence, and since 2016 has chaired the World Energy Council's Energy Trilemma Initiative. Now, we know him best from his eight-year tenure as Director General of DGCOM, where he oversaw significant changes to merger control, cartel enforcement, Article 102, and the EC's relationship with national competition agencies. I'm delighted to welcome my guest today, Sir Philip Lowe. Philip, so welcome to the first in-person version of this podcast. Thank you. (laughs) You're a keen observer of the European project and will know well the old adage that Europe is made in crises. Now, we've had no shortage of crises over the past decade. How do you think the European institutions are bearing up and what do you think the future holds? Have we reached the limits of integration or do you think we're going to experience ever closer integration over the next decade? Well, the vocabulary which you're referring to is a vocabulary which uh, Robert Schumann and Jean Monnet uh, talked about, further ever closer union between uh, European member states uh, and the states of Europe in general. And you have to say, looking back, back on Europe's history over the last 60 or 70 years, well, there's been substantial progress in relation to what Jean Monnet and Robert Schumann originally uh, foresaw. On the other hand, uh, you know, everyone changes over time. Politics change, economics change. And uh, the Europe of six countries at the beginning uh, transformed itself over a number of decades to 28 and then 27 with the departure of the United Kingdom. Um, and uh, to that extent, the, the objectives and goals change too. There's less emphasis on political union as such, but more emphasis on, I believe, pragmatic progression of more cooperation, not just in the economic sphere, but in the political sphere as well. And contrary to the views of, of many people, 10 or 20 years ago, the European Union has made a lot of progress on political, I wouldn't say integration, but in terms of political cooperation. You can see that now uh, in relation to the attitudes vis-a-vis Russia and the Ukraine, you can see it in the uh, way in which uh, it has um, stuck together on financial cooperation 
with those inside the Euro, Eurozone and those outside. And um, you can see it too in the sense of recognition that uh, in areas like health or technology in general and sustainability and climate change, um, it's better to do things together than separately because uh, there's not just the weight of several countries getting together and doing something together, negotiating together, but also uh, the diversity, the richness and the prosperity of those countries. Uh, contrary to Anglo-Saxon beliefs, the problem is, uh, in their view of uh, a rather Eurosceptic view, uh, they don't recognize that the 27 countries of the European Union, uh, for them, there isn't much choice in terms of political cooperation integration. They are on the same continent and they have similar views uh, about things like um, travel across frontiers, um, about things like whether you can should decide uh, product standards uh, at a national level or to a European level. And in so many areas, um, despite the skepticism, the reality is that Europe has succeeded in establishing standards which make sense internationally as well as in Europe. So a lot of setbacks, a lot of crises. Uh, not every crisis uh, gives you a new uh, platform for further success, but it certainly has uh, concentrated minds in, in Europe to do, to do better than it done, has in the past. And so, yes, the institutions remain as they always have been relatively new historically, but also relatively imperfect. There's always something to be done uh, to improve the situation. And uh, nevertheless, uh, it's clear that uh, the institutions, as they set up, um, uh, serve the European Union as a whole. And it's difficult to imagine other ways of doing it than the way it's done at the moment. I remember the time when there was no European Parliament, there was just national parliaments. And um, we certainly um, sometimes have been nostalgic for that uh, period, uniquely because um, one could claim immediately that there was de democratic legitimacy for everything which the European Union did. But without some degree of uh, further involvement of uh, democratic representatives of European citizens in the legislation and the legislative process, it would be impossible to do, do, do anything except on a very, very long framework. So I think that um, despite all the criticisms of, of um, Parliament, the European Parliament, and the degree of lack of interest uh, in terms of the participation in, in uh, the uh, elections for the European Parliament, nevertheless, the institution has proved that it has become, that it can be professionally engaged in 
deciding legislation with the member states. It is alongside the Commission, the body together with the Commission, which can identify in a certain sense the common interests of what's going, what, what should be done. Uh, and that's very difficult. I mean, people uh, often say that uh, the institutions of the European Union are undemocratic. If you scratch surface a bit, you find that the real reason why they dislike the institutions is because actually all member states have to take into account the views of other member states. And that is something which is quite difficult for a lot of local and national politicians. Um, and it, it requires a degree of maturity to get used to that. Philip, you mentioned uh, Brexit a couple of times. Uh, it's still early days, but do you see any change in the decisions that the EU has taken and the way in which they've been taken following Brexit? Do you think the EU has been strengthened or weakened by it? Well, I, I think Brexit for the European Union was a wake-up call um, that uh, it was necessary to respond uh, more rapidly than it had been doing to the challenges which we face, were faced, in particular migration policy, uh, in particular financial cooperation. Um, and by coming to terms with Brexit, the European Union has been able to identify its member states, have been able to recognize that there was a, a clear advantage in working together, but they had to be very serious about it. You couldn't just stand around and wait for something to happen. By the way, it's not the commission who decides things. It's the council, the member states of the European Union and the, and the European Parliament. And uh, the commission clearly has a role in proposing what's going on. Um, but the final say remains with the member states. And I remember being a representative of the Commission inside the Council of Ministers for a number of, for almost two years. You have no uh, doubt after experience like that where power lies in the European Union. It lies at the centre of a decision-making body which involves all 27 member states it is not something decided in Brussels. It's decided all over Europe. So your sense is perhaps Brexit, while, while fairly clearly weakening the UK, I think, I and mean, certainly economically, may in fact have strengthened the EU project. It, it has strengthened it with a certain degree of reserve on that because um, they've got to maintain the momentum which they've established. Um, and by the way, the UK... The UK government, successive governments since Brexit, have aimed at uh, capitalising on the independence which you can have from a larger body. After all, if you don't have to, to wait to find out what the other 27 member states want, as well as yourself, then perhaps you can do things which uh, are possible um, independently. But... I think the reality in a lot of affairs which we're dealing with, economic, monetary, health, security, the reality is that uh, 
cooperation with your neighbours and internationally generally adds a value which is uh, not achievable through uh, independent action on its own. So let me turn to competition policy and your decade at the heart of commission enforcement, first as head of mergers in the early 1990s, and then as director general of DG Comp in the 2000s. First, a question about mergers. You oversaw a major overhaul of EU merger control following the trilogy of court judgments in the early 2000s that, as you'll recall well, overturned three commission prohibition decisions. And the package included a new substantive test, new sets of guidelines, the appointment of, of a chief economist, and various other checks and balances. With the benefit of hindsight, did your recalibration get it right? If you could turn back time, would you do anything differently today? Well, I, I think if you look back at any kind of uh, reform, and this was a fairly radical reform of the system, you, there would be things which you'd want to improve on if you'd been able to go back in time. I, I, I think, though, that it was necessary to demonstrate that um, uh, EU merger control, which is based upon an exclusive competence to, to vet mergers, notwithstanding the referral possibilities, um, places a great responsibility on the Commission to uh, carry out its work in a way which is uh, totally respecting due process, the rights of the defending parties or the merging parties, the rights of, of interveners. And uh, I think that the, it was absolutely necessary to uh, build in uh, internal checks and balances in the system, even put before you got to the issue of, of uh, whether there would be external control. Um, and as every CEO or legal counsel in the world knows, uh, going to Luxembourg to overturn a merger decision is a major challenge. It's something which you could do uh, in, in the perspective of the next transaction, but doesn't make much sense for the transaction you're dealing with in a particular moment. And so the only, the only um, regret that I have really is that we did not uh, go a little bit further in the, in the strengthening of the due process. Um, I personally think that the role of the hearing officers of the Commission could have been made more independent uh, through a contact with the with a with a connection with the European Court of Justice instead of just being attached to the European Commissioner. But uh, the opposing point of view is that, that could actually have frustrated the process, um, slowed it down. The benefits of the merger control process in the European Union is that there are, after all, clear deadlines, and um, the Commission is under, under the responsibility to reach decisions rapidly, but objectively, and on the basis of facts. And that's uh, something which I think uh, everyone in the European Union should be proud of, that it, it is a system which is, still works very well. and. Um, I think that there are systems elsewhere in the world, different kind. There's 
US system based upon a much more prosecutorial approach, which is potentially implementable in the European Union, but with more complications. And uh, what has been uh, actually constructed here is um, adapted to European conditions, adapted to the political environment. And uh, I think uh, one could be relatively satisfied with this, although there are always things to improve. So, Philip, your um, regret may be that um, you didn't go further with the hearing officer. That doesn't reflect, or perhaps it does, a view on your part that the that the ultimate conclusions that the Commission has been reaching on mergers should have been different, that it should have enforced more, perhaps, or should have uh, been a bit more flexible. Do you think the Commission's pretty much got it right? Uh, I... I put a lot of emphasis in when I was Director General and before on, on deepening our economic analysis of, of, of the effects, the impacts of emergers. Um, we also developed far more than previously uh, a dialogue with companies even before they notified uh, a merger so that they were aware of the problems which could uh, arise in the formal procedure, and they could adapt their the design of what they were intending to do in function of that. Perhaps that had had the effect of reducing the number of situations in which the Commission would have been obliged to prohibit a merger. I, I remember having a number of not a number one or two CEOs in my office who wanted to pursue a particular merger, and I had to explain to them that if they did that, probably the, the merger would be prohibited for very obvious reasons, like they would obtain an 80 or 90% market share in a, in a very clearly defined market. So, you know, one can say, have we under-enforced because the, the percentage of, of uh, prohibitions is very low, um, even the cases which involve remedies seems to be relatively small proportion of total. I think the, on the whole, the Commission has been rigorous uh, in applying uh, the tests which it has to apply. Perhaps we have also spent more time than might be reasonable in, in the pre-notification process. Um, but the result, uh, in general, has been perhaps more business-friendly um, than previous situation, and also, nevertheless, uh, guaranteed some protection of consumers and, and the business process. So turning now to antitrust enforcement, uh, you championed the modernization program of the early 2000s that effectively ended the notification system for agreements and concerted practices and gave national competition agencies the power to apply EU competition rules. How do you think the system whose establishment you oversaw has aged? And what, if any, changes would you make now? Well, first of all, I just have to say to be a bit more modest about it than your introduction. Um, this process of modernization of, 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 of uh, the competition rules in the European Union was, was started. Uh, in the mid-1990s, 
uh, I took part in those earlier discussions as well as, as director of the merger task force and we wanted to achieve more rigor, more, uh, more respective uh, deadlines. And um, we were faced, everyone in the commission was faced with the, the, the enormous task of dealing with a system where you, you obliged undertakings to notify transactions between them and other companies with also a suspensive effect, which helped them too. That as long as they notified, uh, they were immune from any complaint or action. So um, uh, the result at the time was that the commission had a huge back backlog of cases which it could not deal with formally in anything uh, respectful of a business timetable. And uh, so um, the need, first of all, to go to move towards more US type approach of, of self-assessment was a logical one for the, for, for the European Commission with respect to cases which it was dealing with. And uh, the, the result um, was um, much more reliance after some maturity of the, of the uh, application of European merger law and antitrust law uh, much more reliance on self-assessment, which uh, I think has uh, put more responsibility on the on on legal counsel to and uh, companies themselves to to choose what they want to do in the light of the existing law. Now, uh, was it necessary also to go as far as to say, well, we'll share this competence to look at these? Look at uh, agreements under Article One Hundred One, in particular, with uh, national competition authorities. Well, I would argue certainly because uh, national competition authorities, by definition, are much closer to some of the markets which which uh, we have to deal with. The European Union, the Commission is arguably the more sensible institution to deal with um, transactions on global markets or European markets, whereas, uh, for example, many retail markets uh, um, require local knowledge, local, local expertise, and uh, it made sense to, um, to, to divide that monopoly, a previous monopoly, to share it with, with national competition authorities. With the effect, which, is, which I think has been very positive, that some of our national competition authorities in, in Europe have been able to take the lead in some areas. In, for example, uh, in Germany, with respect to some of the advances made in dealing with them, um, mergers in the digital sector, or indeed the Dutch um, authority in relation to sustainability issues. Um, I, I don't want to, uh, to diminish the importance of, of uh, any other authority, but those are two authorities who've taken the lead in certain, certain areas. Um, certainly the French uh, uh, Autorité de la Concurrence has uh, 
shown the way in terms of using remi- uh, using interim measures to to um, protect and during an investigation the outcomes uh, for business and for consumers. Uh, so on both counts, the, the need to have a, a system which worked, where you concentrated, you had priorities to decide which were the most harmful agreements and go after them, which could only be done through a self-assessment system, and also let, uh, sharing the competence of, of the Commission with uh, with national competition authorities has led to more effective enforcement globally. It seems to me that modernization has succeeded with respect to the role of the national authorities, as you say, they're filled a space, if you like, or come into their own in very many respects, in part, I think, because of what uh, modernization uh, facilitated, and of course, their general uh, growth and expansion. It also enabled the commission maybe to focus more on cartels and some of the big uh, dominance cases. But at least at the time, I think some, including perhaps yourself, thought or hoped that the commission would continue to issue exemption decisions and comfort letters and to make known its um, policy on a range of different areas. That hasn't quite panned out uh, in the way that some hoped. Is that a source of regret to you or do you think an inevitable consequence of focusing on priorities? Well, I think to be fair to successive commissions and successive uh, management teams in teaching competition, block exemptions, for example, have been uh, widely used and extended and modernized. Um, I can see also in the latest uh, draft market definition notice uh, some effort to bring up to date the application of uh, uh, EU competition law, not just in, re- in relation to case law, but in, re- in relation to how the markets now work. So that's all very good. I, I think that <laughs> something which is regretted by a lot of people in the legal community, but also among companies, is that the Commission has not sometimes responded in terms of saying, well, you have a doubt about this, um, that this kind of transaction, couldn't we give you some guidance? Well, there are lots of guidelines around, um, but they're never enough for our best antitrust lawyers in the world. They're never enough. Um, I I think that um, it would be good if the Commission could, from time to time, for example, make, make an amicus curiae brief in a situation where uh, there are issues and questions raised by national competition authorities on a case. So I, th- I think that more, more could be done in that respect. Going too far in the other direction and then actually encouraging people to seek legal certainty and not take the responsibility of, of uh, self-assessment uh, could lead to some degree of the same degree of um, blockages which emerged in, in the 1980s. Let me turn to a different um, a different area of practice: private damages actions. Another area that um, um, 
um, that was developed under your watch. As you know, it's said by some that the specter of follow-on damages actions has chilled companies' readiness to apply for leniency. And as a result, that uh, some cartels are going undetected. What's your view? Should the leniency program be changed or the principles that govern private damages actions be changed? Or would you leave them both pretty much as they are? Well, I wouldn't, I'm not going to dodge the question by saying that we should wait, wait and see. Uh, by the way, uh, what was started on my watch in terms of you know, reports by Ashurst and by Obsera and other institutes on the benefits of, of the private damages um, framework within Europe that, that, that took um, at least a decade to get into place. Um, at the same time, the leniency, the, the leniency provisions developed and there was a degree of um, enthusiasm to use them. But of course, the different incentives or disincentives provided by these two instruments um, play sometimes play against each other. I, I would personally not rush into changing either system for the moment. Um, but clearly, there is some degree of of um, concern about the uh, diminution in in uh, applications for leniency. Whether this means that we are going with that cartels are no, no longer detected, I, I, I'm not sure. The, the penalties for being in a cartel on both sides, uh, the damage action uh, possibilities and the possibility of, of one of your uh, co-conspirators being a leniency applicant. The two are great disincentives to engage in this activity now. Um, we'll see it in, the, in, the, in the, some of the, the ongoing um, actions uh, throughout Europe and elsewhere, like, like trucks cartel in Europe is, is still generating huge amounts of, of, uh, of litigation and payment uh, in relation to payment card systems. Again, uh, which is not, it's not in principle a cartel activity, but is a follow, it's led to a lot of follow-on action, creates um, disincentives for, for uh, abuse, abusive conduct, which are evident. So I, I don't want to be unself-critical about it, but I think that... Um, uh, I would question the idea that the application of these two instruments has led to less enforcement. I think it has already raised the bar considerably. Philip, you mentioned the role of the Dutch Competition Authority with respect to uh, sustainability. Um, climate change is obviously an existential issue of our time, as you know better than many, given your chairmanship of the World Energy Council's Energy Trilemma Initiative. You'll know well the debate about whether competition rules should be flexed to take greater account of sustainability um, priorities. Do you think the Commission is doing enough in this respect? And if not, what would you like to see? Well, in, the, in its horizontal guidelines, it's really tried to 
what tackled the issue of sustainability. Uh, what 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 would like to see? Well, some of these issues are not black and white. Uh, there is the short term and the long term. If there's a, a very important negative externality of all society, including the consumer's concern, arguably one should be very careful about um, uh, allowing, or at least not attacking, a cooperation agreement, which is, is going to have negative consequences. On the other hand, if you're going to uh, try to say, well, we should be more lenient with agreements simply on the basis of sustainability, well, that too has to be looked at quite closely. Um, uh, it could be that there are longer-term benefits, but in the short term, uh, it can have some harmful effects on the competitive process. I would say that we have to proceed as fast as we can but not sufficiently fast to, uh, to frustrate the analysis which has to be done on these different effects. Society as a whole, consumers concerned, short-term, long-term. And I, I, I would hope that based upon the initiatives which are taking place now, as I refer to the Dutch authority, you could refer to the Greek authorities as well have done some very good work in this area. And what the Commission has, has put on the table as far as guidance is concerned in the horizontal guidelines. Well, it's, it's, it's a good start. It, uh, as I saw one of our uh, leading lawyer friends in Brussels say uh, recently, if we can't do what we must, then we must do what we can. And I think that uh, uh, this process is uh, going to take some years to bed down. I also think that antitrust issues in sustainability are perhaps not as important for a competition authority and for the Commission as some of the implications of um, public intervention in the economy for sustainability purposes. So whether you call it state aid control or whether you refer to the impact of regulation of regulations on competition, those, those, those are as important topics, if not more important, than the issue simply of flexibility for agreements which look sustainable. Thanks, Philip. My last question on antitrust relates to Article 102. Speaking perhaps against self-interest, given your role in Oxera, you've spoken about the risks of giving too much weight to economics, said that the as-efficient competitive test shouldn't, and I quote, constitute the decisive factor for a court in determining whether conduct is abusive or not, and argued instead for a thorough examination of all the circumstances. Given the recent setbacks that the Commission has experienced before the courts, do you regret the emphasis placed on economics in the Article 102 guidance paper and shared General Court President Mark van der Velde's recent observation that the Commission's economic approach may not have served it well? Well, yeah. I, I have some degree of um, uh, ownership of this guidance paper uh, as originally conceived as guidelines uh, in conjunction with my The Economist's 
who were around us at the time, the guidance which was provided, uh, people forget that there was no guidance at all on the application of Article 102 before. It was complete free territory commission to attack whoever it was uh, without any degree of um, indication to the companies concerned whether they were in a red area or a green area or in a gray area. So uh, again, I'm unapologetic about the, the need to provide some degree of guidance to people who, to companies who will be the subject potentially of millions of uh, of uh, euros of, of fines. Um, and if you read the guidance paper, which is not very long, uh, one couldn't say it's overloaded with economics. It's quite a lot of common senses as well, as well as law. And so um, I agree with Mark van der Rode that you can exaggerate in uh, looking too closely at all the economic uh, arguments and, and data which are associated with a potential abusive conduct. I remember one chief economist saying to me and to my commissioner at the time, uh, please um, give us another six months and we will solve this case. Well, you know, in merger control in particular, but also in abusive dominance, we don't have that amount of time. We've got to take decisions, as we all knew from our business school training, in the absence of not 100% of the data necessary to reach them. So the, the president of the court's um, observations that one can exaggerate and go too far uh, are well received in the sense of reminding us that there's a responsibility to effectively enforce the law without um, going overboard. And uh, that's the way I look at it from. The law is based upon fundamentally in 102 on economic concepts, which have to be verified to see whether the evidence matches up to what is actually pretended to be an abuse. Let me turn to the impact of Brexit on UK antitrust enforcement. Of, you've been a former board member of the uh, CMA um, during a time when the uh, CMA um, began to explore its, uh, its new identity post-Brexit and establish itself as one of the most interventionist agencies in the world, at least in the merger area. There's a new CEO, there's a relatively new chairman. What advice would you give them for the coming years based on your experience on the board and um, uh, time running DG Competition? Well, the CMA is, and its predecessors, the Competition Commission and the OFT, have a, a very strong track record in terms of a thorough analysis, investigation and analysis of, of cases. And they are subject to a degree of, of judicial control, which it, it, it is, I think, exemplary. This could give rise to a certain degree of over-caution in some areas to, to reach a decision. But on the whole, it's, it's worked out well. It's understandable that the CMA, uh, with a degree of narrative independence from the consensus 
consensus reached inside the network of European competition authorities has more possibility to innovate in certain areas and possibly also to simplify. Although it has tended on the whole and still tends to go into more detail uh, than other competition authorities, including the US. I would say that vis-a-vis -vis the, the new uh, regime, they are building on a relatively successful regime. They continue to show that they can take the lead in certain areas. Um, I think it's regrettable that the, the the framework which which had been imagined for dealing with the digital economy has not gone forward more quickly. That means it, it will observe, perhaps learn from what's happening with the Digital Markets Act and the Digital Services Act and the other acts inside the European Union. But it, it, it's unusual to find Therefore, the, the UK authorities are in that area somewhat behind, whereas they were in front. Um, but I think they should build on, on, on the successes of the past, show that the, the degree of independence they now have uh, pays off, and work closely with the other competition authorities who overseeing uh, global markets, uh, and that involves clearly having a good dialogue with the European Commission. Um, I hope that they will take note of the benefit of doing that, uh, as they would with um, dealing with the, the FTC and the DOJ in the States, or indeed the JFTC or the KFTC. Three uh, quick-fire questions to end. If you could change one thing about EU antitrust enforcement, what would it be? I've come back to the issue of, of due process. I would um, strengthen the, the capacity of um, for defending parties and interveners to use um, whether it's a hearing officer or courts to correct things which um, possibly could go wrong. And that's a good discipline on the commission. So more checks and balances. Yeah. Yeah. Second, what's your proudest achievement and your greatest regret? I think one thing which I really uh, appreciate is that inside the Commission, inside DG Competition, we did place in the organizational structure and in our daily work considerable emphasis not on what instrument you use to tackle the problem, but on analysis of the markets getting into the facts and finding out what's going on. You could call that economics, you can call it just basic common sense, but it's a combination of the two. And I am uh, quite proud of the fact that that emphasis has not disappeared. And we haven't gone back to the old days when uh, simply you, 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 you choose a, a legal instrument to, for what you wanted to do and you forgot about what market you're dealing with. And the fact that a market is affected by state aids, by merger control by whatever, looking at it holistically is very important. As far as regrets are concerned, many, uh, but uh, in terms of one, um, I, I, I'd say that uh, the, the debate on, uh, on one or two 
has has not resulted in guidance which is as useful as I thought it might be. And also, secondly, uh, I believe that we're still uh, our ambitions as far as state agent control, state aid control concerned, were, were not sufficiently strengthened, uh, and in particular. The absence of, of any kind of deadlines in state aid control regime is something which I bitterly regret. You can see it now in the, the fact that there's been a lot of flexibility being given to to authorizing things which are positive, which governments propose. At the same time, the procedure of notification of state aids leads to a situation where even the the projects which are the most valued by society and by member states and by the commission, uh, it takes at least eighteen months or two years to get a decision out of the commission. That's not good. That's not good public policy. And finally, Philip, is there one thing you can tell us about yourself that is not widely known? Oh, there, there are several things, but I suppose the, apart from the fact that I read more poetry than prose. I would cheerfully take any train anywhere uh, in, as opposed to traveling either by plane or by road. So poetry and trains, yeah. your secret vices. Yes. Philip, thank you very much for a fascinating mm-hmm. podcast. In preparing for today, I was reminded of your uh, extraordinary contribution and legacy. We were really Lucky to have you among us in the Brussels Antitrust community, even if we did have to uh, share you for part of that time. So thank you for a fascinating discussion, our first in-person podcast. I'm Nick Levy and look forward to welcome you to our next podcast. Thank you very much.